You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. morning. I've shared this story years ago, but there is a lot of new faces in this room, so I'm going to share it again. Uh, I'm originally from Buffalo, New York. Tough loss last week. We will be back next season. But in Buffalo, we have what's called the Bills Mafia, aka the best fan base in the NFL. And one of the things we're known for is at tailgating parties, we set up chairs and we set up tables and like the WWE, we go through said cha- t- chairs and said tables. It's a little bit weird, but uh, it's supposed to be loud and kind of rambunctious. That's a little bit of the culture up there. Now, I promise I have never personally been through a set of tables or chairs outside of a stadium. But growing up, I did have this game I used to play with all my friends in high school. It was called Fighting in the Dark. And a picture I found on Google will be up on the screen. I still think it's a pretty good game. I made it up. Anyways, there was usually four or five of my friends who'd play this on the weekends when we were, we were hanging out. Uh, we were like 16 or 17 or 18, so give me a break this morning. But the rules were as soon as the lights went off in that room, it was an all-out brawl. <laughs> Fists, elbows, body slams, spears, kicks whatever it took to get the other guy down. And as soon as somebody could reach the lights, the rule was you had to start, you had to stop swinging, I should say. Now I remember, because it was dark, you never saw it coming. (laughs) And because it was dark, you could swing at somebody, you could push somebody, you could body slam somebody, and the darkness in that moment would be your cover. You could hit somebody real hard, wasn't me, Somebody gets dragged, they get carpet burn, wasn't me. Somebody gets a bloody nose, you bite your lip, you get thrown through drywall, a large fan gets thrown at you, who did it? It was him. (laughs) It wasn't until you got the lights turned on that all the craziness happened. That was a crazy way to be nuts. The darkness made it way more vulnerable, way more easy to claim innocence, way more easy to be wild. Now, why do I tell that story this morning? Because your pastor was an idiot as a child. Yes, that's true. That's, that is the least of the stories this morning. Because we're going to start a fight club at King's Church. Well, no. Uh, maybe. Uh, that's right, we'll fight over the seats. Uh, I, I tell this story because the absence of light, darkness, has been something throughout history that's typically been associated with evil or amplifying evil. For much of human history, as soon as things went dark, it was hard to see or know what was going on. Things became more vulnerable. Crime was easier to pull off. The result was that fear began to be associated with darkness, and of course, fear was associated with evil, and evil, eventually full circle, was associated with darkness. Now, in the Bible, we see the same idea. That darkness is associated with ignorance, with Satan, with sin, with living wild, with living apart from God. 
And yet, in contrast, Jesus Christ comes into the world, and he's the light of the world. He's the light that gives light to us. His way is the light. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will no longer walk in darkness, but walk in the light of life. And this morning, we'll see just that, that God has called us to live in the light, to step out of the darkness and to walk in the light of life. That's really my main idea. It'll be up on the screen. It's the main idea of this passage. It's the main idea of this message, and it's this. Walk in the light. Walk in the light. As believers, God has called us to live lives that show truly what it means to be human. What it means to be the best version of ourselves. But we know that sin and the darkness, it robs us of our humanity. It promises us freedom and strength and knowledge to be like God. But in all actuality, it weakens us. It defaces us. It alienates us. It enslaves us. But God in the gospel of light this morning makes us more. It makes us more truly human. Day by day, it makes us like Jesus, who is all that it means to be truly good and truly human. My outline is going to be up on the screen. It's pretty straightforward this morning. It's going to flow right from the passage. And it's this. Number one, no darkness or no the darkness. Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. Walk in the light. Ephesians 5, 7 through 14. Two simple points that contrast a lot like the darkness and the light. Now, for those of us uh, who perhaps you're joining us for the first time this morning or you've been in and out over the last few months, as a church, we've been going through a series in the book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter to the church. And in the first half of this letter, it's all about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Through him, we're predestined. We're adopted into his family. We're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And us people of different backgrounds, we have been united together as one in him. But the second half of this letter, where we've been and where we are this morning, it's all about the so what. It's all about the how then shall we live. It's all about ethics. Now when you get into ethics, when you get into the how we should live, it's it's often, it gets confusing. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but usually the worst and biggest mistake people can make about Christianity is that it's a list of behaviors that you do and don't do. That it's a list of ethics. They think about becoming a Christian, and they say, will I have to stop sleeping with my girlfriend? Will I have to forgive my brother or my sister? Will I have to start changing how I speak? Will I have to do all these things if I become a Christian? Well, the answer is, of course, yes, but it's totally the wrong question because becoming a Christian is about something much more dramatic. It means that you change deeply on the inside. You become new. Your motives become new. Your identity changes. Your whole life changes. Of course, ethics follow. Of course, things follow. And we'll look at a lot of these things today, but the change happens first. 
And how does that happen? Well, it happens because we meet Jesus Christ for real. I recently rewatched the first Chronicles of Narnia movie. I really can't get through a sermon without talking about C.S. Lewis. But in the movie, there's four human characters, and they end up in a land called Narnia. And one of the characters who you see up on the screen is this boy named Edmund. And when he arrives in the land of Narnia, he almost immediately meets the white witch. She tempts him uh, quite quickly with some hot chocolate and some candy, and he bites. Eventually, we, as we read the story or watch the movie, his lusts lead him to betray his brother and his sisters to the white witch, who he knows deep, deep, deep down inside isn't good. He knows that. And as time goes on, Edmund sees more and more of this, this witch being evil, yet he rationalizes it. And eventually he becomes her slave. Edmund represents betrayal through and through. He knows, he knows deep down inside, but he gives in. And he goes worse than he ever thought he could go. But as the movie progresses, and Edmund is at his very worst moment, things pivot. He gets rescued. He's brought to Aslan, a lion who represents the Christ figure in this story. And in the movie, it's such a powerful scene. It's, it's, it's the picture up on the screen. You see them talking, Edmund and Aslan, for the first time. And you can't hear what's being said, but even after all of his mistakes, this lion takes him at his lowest point and restores him. It's gentle. It's loving. And eventually, a big part of the movie is that this lion, Aslan, dies for him. He takes his place. Out of sheer grace, he dies for Edmund. Now, this is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of how change actually happens. It's a picture of meeting Jesus Christ. In the story, you and I are Edmund. We bit. Our lusts led us to betray the thing that was most important, God, His glory, His honor. A Christian is someone who knew deep, deep, deep down inside that what they were doing wasn't good, that we rationalized it, and we went deeper than we ever thought. But in our worst moment, we were rescued, and we were instated, reinstated, I should say, in our moment of darkness, in our lowest point, we were met with the grace of God. And that grace has a face. It's the face of Jesus Christ who died for you and I because He loves us. That is the gospel. It's His grace. It's His love that leads us to repentance. His grace changes us. And important for us this morning, it leads us to live in a particular way. Not so that He'll love us, not so that He'll accept us, but to please Him out of gratitude for what He has done for us. All of this really leads us to our first point this morning, and it's this. Know the darkness. Know the darkness. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That's the Greek word hagios, which, which doesn't mean super Christians. It doesn't mean uh, special select Christians. It means holy. 
those set apart by God, ordinary Christians, saints. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you about this with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons and daughters of disobedience. Now notice Paul lists three particular types of vices here. Sexual immorality and impurity covetousness, which is called idolatry, and unwise or foolish talk. He's listing them because to live as a Christian, you have to know something about the darkness of sin. You have to know something about the danger, the threat, the sinfulness of sin. Now notice first, sexual immorality and impurity. Right out of the gates, this is a much harder one to speak about as a pastor, because it's difficult to avoid the label judgmental. Why is that? Well, when speaking about Christian sex ethics, this often gets thrown at us. And there's good reason for that. Uh, The church around the world often has ignored other sins, for instance, greed, and so it's lost a little bit of credibility when it talks about this. So this has to start with humility. The truth is, is we have all struggled with this or are currently struggling with this. To struggle with sexual immorality and impurity this morning makes you a human. Let me just say that again. To struggle with this makes you a human. And most of us, if we're honest, we have walked in the darkness on this issue before. Like walking into a dark room, we went by our feelings. It felt good. It feels good, so do it. But to know Jesus Christ is to know a better way. It's to know a wisdom that you can trust. It's to experience a light and a power that can free you from yourselves. Sex, according to God himself, is something very, very powerful. It is a profound union between a man and a woman. It's a mingling of souls. It's an act of love and commitment. It is a self-giving physical act. It's intended to create and celebrate oneness. What is oneness? Well, marriage, according to God himself, is something very powerful too. It is a profound union between a man and a woman. It's becoming one. It's becoming one financially, one emotionally, one spiritually, one legally, one personally, one physically. When we use sex outside of marriage, all we're doing is taking physical oneness from someone without giving them the rest of us, without giving, us, without giving them financial, emotional, spiritual, legal, or personal oneness. It's misusing a good gift. It's ultimately dehumanizing ourselves. If we say this morning, well, I love them, I'm sure you do, but you haven't given yourself to them in the covenant of marriage yet. And you and I both know you could walk away at any time. If we say, well, we're just not in a place to get married yet, okay, then stop having sex. (laughs) Because sex is something powerful that celebrates and solidifies the oneness you have between you and your spouse that you have financially, spiritually, emotionally, physically, legally, personally. 
not just physical. Secondly, another vice to understand further here is unwise or foolish talk, particularly around joking, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Now, thank the Lord, premarital sex just got the axe this morning, but this is not a full prohibition against comedy. There are many who think holiness, godliness, and, and, and uh, walking with Jesus means seriousness. No laughter, no joy. To be godly means you're like a Jedi Knight or a monk. But Jesus is not bland. At times, he was very witty. He was very humorous at times. Our God is the God who made the duck-billed platypus. He made monkeys. He made me. He made you and I. There is so much humor and fun in this world. We even have categories of humor. Slapstick humor, think the Three Stooges. Dry humor, think Michael Scott in the office. Toilet humor, think middle school boys or at times college age boys. Witty humor, cringe humor, observational humor, think sometimes Jerry Seinfeld, topical humor, one-liners, and more. This verse is not necessarily saying all that is bad. The idea here, though, is that there's a type of joking. There is a type of speech that's intended to be hurtful or destructive and lead people into the gutter. It comes from a heart that is off, which means it's going to be common in the world we live in. To use filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking has to do with ridiculing. It has to do with using suggestive language to someone or behind their back. It's using wit in the wrong way. Way. Now, this is very hard to find balance. I think this is probably the hardest topic to speak on. So let me just give two illustrations that hopefully bring this out a little bit. One from the Bible and one not from the Bible. One from the Bible. In the letter to the Galatians, it's another uh, epistle in the Bible. The background is that there's some people saying, you need to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. You need to do this act in order to be right with God. And Paul, the writer, he gets so, so annoyed at these guys, he finally just tells them, and I'm going to summarize it here, he says, okay, if you believe that, if you actually believe that, you know what, you should just go all the way. Don't just cut down there a little bit, cut it all off. Now, from one perspective, that sounds filthy, that, that sounds perhaps crude and foolish, but not necessarily. Another example is an article I read on all this that I really think drives home the point well. And the story goes, a wife looks at herself in the mirror, and what she sees really upsets her. The article goes on to say, feeling ugly, she says to her husband, I look fat, wrinkled, and old. I need a compliment from you. And he replies, well, your eyesight is nearly perfect. <laughs> the author of the article, who's a Christian, asks, is this good humor or is this downright wicked? He says it all depends on relationship. His point is, is that the husband, if the husband's made unkind comments to her before, he's just knifed her in the heart. His humor is cruel. He's hiding behind his humor. He knows that his witty remark is meant to leave a mark. But on the other hand, if he tends to be a quiet guy, perhaps who adores her, then that comment can be brilliantly funny. And good, in light of a healthy relationship between them, it's understood he's being silly and trying to make her laugh in her disheartened state. It really depends on 
relationship. The point again, though, is that from one perspective, it could sound filthy and crude and foolish, but not necessarily. The principle here is check your heart. Jokes and speech that degrade or lead people into real ungodliness in their thinking is what's being prohibited here in the Christian ethic. Words can hurt. They're powerful. And they can add more darkness or bring more light. Third, covetousness. This is another vice to examine. He says in verse 5, it's idolatry. Notice the other sins listed here were mainly external. Sexual morality, impurity, foolish talk, but covetousness or coveting, which is called idolatry here, is internal. It's something that mainly happens in the heart. A principle here might be that to know the sinfulness of sin is not only to know that sin is something external that we do, but it's something lurking in our hearts. Now, the simple definition of covetousness is basically greed. It's craving something that God's chosen to not give us at the time. It's an attitude in the heart of never being satisfied, comparing, constantly looking to the next milestone, never having enough. Idolatry, on the other hand, is worshiping something that's not God. It's finding our identity, our purpose, our fulfillment, our hope, our life, our peace, our satisfaction in something else. Now, coveting is idolatry because when we worship something that's not God, we will never be satisfied. Even if it's a good thing this morning, if our career is more important than God, if our families, our kids, our political cause, it will eat us up alive. It'll eat us alive because anything we put in the place of God will fail to give you only what the true God can actually give you. You'll be driven to the ground by it. You'll be paralyzed by fears if something goes wrong with it. At the end of the day, we worship, we hope in, we trust in, we seek after the things that we think are absolutely necessary to live a happy life. And this morning, you might ask yourself, what is it that you must have that will make you happy? Is it a certain salary? Is it to graduate from a certain school? Is it to have approval from your friends? Is it to be married? Is it to be married to someone else? Is it to have kids? Is it to lose 20 pounds? The truth is we shouldn't feel that way about anything in our lives except God. We might want to make another 10K or want to be married or lose another 20 pounds, but to know God means that our soul shouldn't depend on anything else for ultimate security, ultimate joy, ultimate life except for Him and Him alone. Now, I said we've all struggled with sin. I've struggled with everything here that I've mentioned today. But as the passage continues here, there's a bit of a warning, isn't there? It has to do with the fact that there's a big difference between struggling with sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and being sexually immoral and impure and covetous. To struggle means that we fall into sin at times and we repent. But to be sexually immoral and impure, to be covetous, means that we've made a lifestyle out of it. We have no shame. There's no intent to change. And to those who've done that, as well as other sins, the warning is clear. Verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. He adds, some will say it's actually not a big deal. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons and daughters of disobedience. Said another way, in Christ, we are not our mistakes this morning. We find forgiveness. We are not defined by our past. But know the sinfulness of sin. Know the deceitfulness of it. Know how dangerous it really turns out to be. In light of that, the passage continues and we'll see our second point this morning. Walk in the light. Verse 7, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So notice here, Paul lists three particular ways we can walk in the light. One, by not partnering or taking part in the unfruitful works of darkness, verse 7, verse 11. Two, by walking as children of the light and trying to discern what's pleasing to the Lord, verse 10. And three, shining the light and making the gospel seen. Let's start with the first, by not partnering or taking part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Verse 7, don't become partners with them. But verse 11 really unpacks it with better nuance. Don't become partners means don't become partakers in other people's darkness. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Now, it's important to remember, Jesus is a friend of sinners, yet he never sinned. He's not locking himself in a fortress so that he's never defiled. He loves people, even the worst of people, and yet he never sins. And here, notice it's not saying don't be friends with people who aren't Christians. It's not saying don't love people who aren't Christians. It's not saying as a Christian, you need to personally censure people who don't share your faith or your ethics. It's not saying any of that. He's saying that we shouldn't participate or cheer on sin. Why? Well, verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. What does that mean? What does that mean to be light in the Lord? Well, the next verse will tell us. Light represents goodness and righteousness and truthfulness. But if we're honest this morning, how is that possible? If we've struggled or are struggling with every one of these sins and vices mentioned here, how is it possible that we could be categorized as a person who is good and right and true. How could any of us honestly point to ourselves and say, look at my truthfulness? Am I not so brilliant and beautiful in my moral excellence that you need to almost wear sunglasses to look at me? Why would anyone, any Christian say, I am light? Well, the answer is in that word, in. Light in the Lord. It links us back to a major concept we've seen in the book of Ephesians, and it's a concept called union with Christ. It's the idea that the moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the moment you believe in Him as your own, you're united to Him. You're put in Him. What that means is that what's true of Him becomes true of you. Although you, in yourself, in and of yourselves, you're darkness at times and still flawed at times, and I'm darkness at times and still flawed at times, because of God's great mercy, 
what it means to be in Christ is that he sees you now as brilliant. He sees you as beautiful, as holy, as light. In other words, if you're in Christ this morning, God has done an amazing work in your life. You are light and he's working in you to make you light. Don't go back into the darkness. It's not worth it. It's not who you are anymore. It's not who you were made to be. Number two, another way we walk in the light is to actually walk as the children of the light, verse 8, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, verse 10. Now, the basic Christian answer here is that it's no mystery as to what is pleasing to the Lord. It's in the Word. It's in the Bible. That's true. That's very true. So, if you have two job offers and one is to work to facilitate slave labor in China, and the other one is to create telephone ads for a company in Arkansas without any ethical issues, the Bible itself rules out taking the job in China. It's pretty obvious. But a lot of times in life, we get into situations or we get opportunities where sometimes it's not totally clear. Where all the options presented to us are morally permissible. Where the word itself isn't actually particularly ruling out any particular option. That might be in like what job we take, spending your money maybe tonight on dinner or something else, who you marry, when, when exactly to have kids. So the question becomes, how then can we make decisions to please God when something's not ruled out or when something's not immediately obvious? Well, notice here Paul uses the word walk. Walk as children of light, trying to discern what the will of the Lord is. In the Bible, to walk is a metaphor for life. When it says walk as children of the light, it means live your life for the Lord. It's a helpful metaphor because when we walk, just like life, it's always towards a destination. We're always going somewhere. There's always an end game. Let's say this morning you are making a lot of money or you're trying to make a lot of money this morning. Is there anything wrong with that? No, not necessarily. But the question is, for what purpose? What or who are you making money for? What or who are you doing your job for? What is the end game? Okay, so you're trying to get up the career ladder. Fine. What's the purpose? What's the motives of your heart? Is it to gain approval? Is it to gain control? Is it to gain power? Look at the motives of your heart, the direction of your heart. Find out what you're doing it for, who you're really doing it for. Find out your end game. And as a child of the light, remember who has rescued you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 3, make the end game all about him. Make your motives all about him. That's how it gets easier to discern what is the will of God for my life in this particular area. And finally this morning as we close this passage, a third way to walk in the light is to shine the light and make the gospel seen. Verse 11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose them to what? Is it denounce them? Bully them into a different ethic. Verse 13 and 14 adds, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
for all of us that know him this morning, as we move to a time of the Lord's Supper, remember that we carry the light of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus wherever we go. We have a responsibility as individuals, as the church, to show the absurdity, to show the illogical, humorless, broken world that we live in, to show a better way, a God who gave himself for the world. And for those of us perhaps who don't know him this morning, come to the light this morning. Come awake. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine upon you. Step into his light this morning. Receive him as your own. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.